Hello, lifers. This is Heather, and this is the Life in the Whirlwind podcast. Today, I have a special guest who is a returning guest. I have my friend Phil Monroe, who is a psychologist, a blogger, a man, a husband, a father. And uh, I have spoken about Phil recently that he's transitioning away from BTS Graduate School of Counseling, where I work, and is moving on to the Trauma Healing Institute at American Bible Society, and will be bringing trauma healing to the world, which is very exciting, and he'll be great at it. And um, I'm trying to think of all the other things. There are a lot of other things I could probably say about Phil, but that's all I'll say. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. You're back now that this podcast has a little longevity. Right. <laughs> You're on episode five. First ever guest, actually. So um, today we're going to talk about shame messages. A lot of people have expressed interest in talking more deeply about shame messages and their prevalence and what to do with them. And so we thought we would talk about that today. So... We're going to talk specifically about, I would like to sort of talk a little bit about um, a blog post that Phil just wrote on June 16th. Uh, I'm just going to read a little snippet of this, Phil, of something that you wrote here. Um, You're talking about trauma and the kinds of trauma that sort of have a higher level of negative self-talk at the end, which is, you know, what people who dissociate during their trauma, they sort of disappear during their trauma, right. have a harder time combating negative self-talk afterward. So if you'd like to look at that blog post, it's philipmonroe.com, one L, and um, you can check it out. I'll post it on this, the post for this episode, if you want to check it out. But this is something that you wrote in, the, in here that I thought was interesting. In my experience, negative attributions about the self are just about the hardest things for us to change. We may have developed these well-formed beliefs from failure experiences, or we may have had them formed for us by our families. But whatever the cause, they are so very hard to let go. In fact, when others show kindness to our perceived ugliness, we tend to pull back, refusing to allow these parts to be acceptable. Um, And then you ended this blog post with a question or two. What is it about letting go of our shame and accepting ourselves as normal, as valuable? And how would you articulate the problem? So I'd like to talk talk to you about that question. Um, You know, we all have shame narratives. So talk about what causes them and how we can begin to disempower these messages. Sure. Maybe it would be helpful just to... uh remind ourselves about what shame is. So shame is uh, something that we feel is who we are. There is no difference between our shame message and our sense of self. So sometimes we can feel guilty about something. You know, I feel guilty that I didn't do something or that I did do something, but I don't think that necessarily says everything about me. But when we get to shame, it becomes something that I am. It's not something I've done. It's actually in my DNA, it's my cells, it's, it's me. So there's no way to separate from it. I am defiled, I am 
um, detestable. And so how, uh, how that, that raises the question of how do we actually combat those beliefs about ourselves that are so permanent feeling they you know and so that's why I said you know sometimes when somebody gives us a kind word and says oh you aren't really that way this is how I see you we actually reject them uh, because that's not our perception of ourselves, mm -hmm. right yeah so that's that's a little bit about what uh, about what shame is and um, one of the hardest things to do is well let me back up for a second i think we do one of three or four things when we face that sense of self that is so negative and detestable we either agree with it and fall into deeper despair we blame shift it onto others and we spend a lifetime trying to say it's not us it's somebody else we just try to deny its existence um, altogether or fourth we actually spend our whole lifetime trying to perfect ourselves we really do believe somehow if i just do enough good things mm -hmm. if i do enough things that people like then maybe just maybe i won't be so full of these negative feelings maybe i'll come to believe a different line about myself mm -hmm. none of those usually work yeah yeah that's so interesting yeah it's funny because that builds on itself like there's a scarcity of self when you're trying to combat shame a lot of the time you know one of the things i thought of as i was thinking about this episode is how do you combat shame without further shaming yourself like mm. i am not strong enough to fight shame you know it's like further shame right and and um, once you have that shame filter it really does filter out things that would counteract that narrative right it would it, yeah i did that good thing but dot mm -hmm. dot dot mm -hmm. uh, my motives weren't right mm -hmm. <laughs> um, i may have passed that exam but really i'm terrible at exams it was a fluke yeah. you know it wasn't me it was some other Right. reason so again that's why and then on top of that what you just said is oh, I have such shame narratives I really am bad it's sort of like the idea yeah. like so comes true yeah. as you live out of it type right of thing. yeah it's interesting so at, here's a question that I just thought of sorry this is off the cuff um, one thing I when you said that I thought of is sometimes we get a little nervous about being proud of ourselves like we call that pride you know it's like oh i can't mm -hmm. say i did really well on this test because that's pride and i don't want to get a big head about it or whatever and sometimes it can be really hard to accept compliments or accept kind mm -hmm. words from others in that way so what's the how do you talk about that a little bit it seems that sometimes our cultures and I say that plural, um, that can be, you know, certain New England cultures for where I grew up in or Christian cultures really tell us that any kind of congratulatory, congratulatory or prideful thought is wrong. It's, it's really the worst sin ever. Right. Um, and so I should reject anybody's kinds words um, or say that, well, it wasn't me, it was God, or it was, yeah. you know, it was something else, right? Because the worst sort of sin is to be arrogant, mm -hmm. um, which means that we can't actually 
honestly evaluate what we're good at. Mm. And we have to reject those things. And so sometimes our, our social constructs out of Christianity really encourage us to negate ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So it sounds like you almost the way you're answering this a little bit is maybe not on purpose, but you're answering this is like if we have maybe one way to combat shame messages is to grow in a more accurate sense of self, both good and right. you know negative and positive. Right. So here's a, an idea for you. Have you ever tried to talk somebody out of a fear? How does it go? It doesn't usually go very well. They may actually feel a little bit of comfort, but then as soon as you leave or as, you know, it comes right back. The only way a person really uh, is able to let go of anxiety is to, in some ways, embrace it. Not embrace it as it is true, mm-hmm. but it is what I feel. Mm-hmm. And then I have to talk back to it. So I cannot, I'm not going to be able to combat shame by just buying your message about me. It may help me, and it may really say, wow, that's so different from how I perceive myself. And that may start me down a good path, but I really do have to buy it. So the first thing we actually do is actually have to accept our shame narratives. Mm. Not as true, mm. but as real. Yeah, interesting. I really do have this feeling about myself. This is what I think about me. Mm. That's the only way I'm going to be able to begin to hold it out from myself and say, wow, that's a thought I have. That's a belief I have. Now I can actually examine whether it's true. Mm. Yeah, interesting. One statement that I say a lot is apparently this is real to me. Because for whatever reason, that feels very, it's almost like this accepting statement. Like apparently this is here. Apparently, you know, but not to say apparently this is true is a hard, that's a hard battle sometimes. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. And to be able to accept your shame narrative as your narrative that you have had and maybe had for a long time without turning it into see what's wrong with me, see why would I do this, um, but just say, okay, I have this line of thinking. It's, it's there. It's present. And now maybe I have a close friend who can say, yeah, I can see that you have that. What would begin to make some cracks and chinks into that armor that you have? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, the one thing that shame narratives have in common with i don't know i'm going to put this out here and see what you think i wonder if contributions to shame narratives not in the moment necessarily so like when we hear something really nice from someone and it makes us feel really good and we start to almost depend so much on what the other person is thinking about us Mm -hmm. that can have the reverse effect on the shame side right it's like so much of this is giving power to other people and what they say about us or what we think they say about us so how would you recommend to somebody who struggles with that just over relying or over empowering people like outsiders' uh, words about you or what you think they think, think about you? I think there's a developmental process. You know, a child doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of evaluation of themselves until 
others are giving it to them, right? Um, and so they do rely heavily on a parent or a teacher's noticing what was good and what was needs more work and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we don't want them to stay there. So there is a developmental process. And so I think it's normal and appropriate to hear, okay, this is what my friend says about me. I'm going to try that on. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try this line on and try to wear it like a garment and see it doesn't quite fit it's itchy i want to get rid of it but i'm going to sit with it for a little bit and and then use it to as to change my metaphor to as eyeglasses to see life to see myself to maybe get some other views but i'm going to have to internalize it Mm. and i cannot stop we don't want to stop at the developmental process of saying i have to depend on what other people think because that's really means that I'm not able to talk to God and interact with God in a way to understand who I am, right? Yeah. So how would you recommend someone develop, continue that development process past that point? So a couple of things is, is um, you know, obviously embracing your own narratives that are there, beginning to challenge some of them, try on some new ones, um, you know, um, notice the messages that you're receiving, and which ones you accept a whole lot more than others. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some, yeah. a stranger who says something about you, so what? Right. Um, another person who I care about says something that really hurts and matters more. Mm-hmm. Why does it matter more? Mm-hmm. Why, you know, and so there's some evaluation there. Just, it's observing the self. Um, the goal, by the way, is not to have your own island of thoughts about yourself because you can't really know yourself without input from other people and frankly from God in my perspective so um, the goal is not to just be so self um, focused that you only listen to your own messages but it is to know whose messages matter most why and should I reevaluate that yeah that's it's a seesaw right it's this balancing act Yeah. yeah oh this is challenging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's connected yeah. to me. It's good. It's important. This is hard stuff. Just for the sake of saying this out loud to the listeners, no one is exempt from this, I'm pretty sure. Correct. And it's usually our biggest challenge in life. And it's lifelong. So mm-hmm. it's not something that you do for six months right. and then you put it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we both have said here is narratives, you know, this word narratives, this, I use story Mm -hmm. as a verb a lot Uh and how have you utilized or, um, you know, sort of talked about with your clients or friends or yourself or whatever, rewriting narrative or narrative therapy and, you know, how might somebody do that on their own? Yeah, narratives don't have to be long paragraphs either. Um, They can be gut feelings. When you wake up in the morning and you first are conscious, what's the first thoughts that pop into your head? Um, It might not really be much of a thought. It may be just a a groan, uh, you know, uh, I hate life, you know, something like that. That's a narrative. Yeah. Um, So part of what we try to do in counseling is help people begin to articulate that out loud what are the narratives that really shape me 
and shape my experience of myself, shape my experience of others. Um, where did they come from? Um, are they the narratives I have to have? Mm. And can I, like a good screenwriter, decide to try different narratives, right? Different lines. Um, so that's really what we're, we're doing. Yeah, and because I'm me, I would like to add a little component to that too. Think about um, when we feel shame, I think it's important to check in with our bodies, to like scan our bodies and notice where it's showing up in the body. Because, you know, like I feel shame in a very, like in a pretty specific number of places, like my stomach or my chest or my throat or something. Uh, you know, to know where that's going to show up for you, I think to some degree, I'm all, I, I feel pretty passionately about trying to disarm shame however possible. So like even just knowing where it's going to show up and almost be ready to track it and trap it and stop it is, that's one way to do it that I would kind of think about. Yeah, I don't, uh, I, I, I agree. I think that our bodies can be the signal to let us know that the narrative has already begun yeah. and we weren't even aware of it. Mm -hmm. I also think the goal is not to have the feeling. It is to maybe create a separate path so you feel the tension in your throat mm -hmm. and you notice it and you decide that you want to go down a different narrative path. Mm -hmm. It's not to stop the initial Right. But so the it's goal the... is not to not have the feeling. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That actually, I think that causes more suffering or it can cause more. Yeah. Try not to think about something. <laughs> yeah. Try not to have a Don't feeling. Don't think about Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, one thing that I, one thing that we share in common is our passion for seeing faith communities be safer places for people, you know, if we were to get more specific, you tend to, you know, you and I both have this passion to see faith communities be safe for traumatized people, particularly, but right. anybody, <clears throat> because shame is an equal opportunity offender. You know, how would you say, you know, here's Jesus, who Christian faith communities profess to follow as the Lord of life. And he was all about moving toward those who the societally righteous people called scum and garbage and sinners and bad, you know. So how do you see faith communities now contributing to the shame problem? I think we want to cover it up. Our storyline is that Jesus redeems us and changes us. And I fully believe that. But I also believe that he meets, as you said, sinners where they are and engages them as people. And so sometimes our Christian narrative can say, this is something of the past, so therefore we can't talk about it. We don't need to talk about it. It's not you anymore. Just move on. I think about a couple of stories in the Bible. Jesus with Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus is this tax collector, this pariah. He's, he's Jewish, but he's collecting money for the Roman uh, you know, invaders. And so what a terrible person he is. He's hated. 
um, he's small, and so he's made fun of. He's up in a tree, and Jesus says, I need to come to your house to eat. <laughs> he needs something from Zacchaeus. Um, the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, in John 4, if you want to ever look this up, she is getting water in the middle of the day because she's trying to avoid what her own people are probably saying about her. She's had four husbands, is it? And the one she's with now is not her husband. So she's certainly led some sort of life that was not considered acceptable then and hardly now, right? Mm -hmm. um, and she was a Samaritan, which a, a good Jewish teacher would never want to relate to, not touch, not engage. He asks for, for a drink of water. He needs something from her. And he doesn't start with, and you need to clean up your act. He actually engages her in conversation. Um, she actually tries to get him into a political conversation, and he kind of sidesteps it and does some other things and is uh, enticing to her about, hey, what is this guy? Who is he? What is he here? How, what does he have to offer me? Um, That's interesting, too, because just the fact that he's asking them for something what an enormous amount of dignity that is given in that moment. Of dignity, you value, me. you yeah. have some. Imagine if we did this in our communities, if we took the least of these, these people who are struggling with shame and said, they actually have something to offer our faith communities and we need it now, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, let's go find it. So you're not just your shame. You're not just your guilt. You're not just your mental illness. You're not just your whatever it is that you're struggling with, your trauma. And we began to engage it. So that would be one way. And when somebody did talk repeatedly, as we do in, with our traumas, about the things that were broken, where we're broken, we would say, yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. You know, that's part of your story. Yeah. I think even catching ourselves. I was, I was with some pastors recently, and I, I think even it's so easy to get caught up in this feeling of overwhelmedness in a congregation of people like faith communities, people who are leaders or ministers, I think they can get overwhelmed very easily and rightfully so with all the needs of people. But that's such a good invitation for people who do that work all the time of like, look for the things that you need from them to give them the dignity. And then it, it's a win-win scenario where you don't feel so overwhelmed and they don't feel like they're just draining you. It's a good practical mm -hmm. tip yeah. <laughs> for everybody. It's a good win-win. Okay. So what would you say to people, because I'm sure many of these people are listening, um, what would you say to people who have been very wounded by faith communities? You're right. It happens. It shouldn't happen, but it does all too frequently. Our faith communities aren't Jesus, they're humans. This does not excuse bad behavior, but it helps us remember that even our leaders um, in, in the Christian tradition, we talk about that we're sheep following the shepherd Jesus. Well, even our leaders who are supposed to be under shepherds are also sheep, and so they're kind of lost as well. There are safe communities. They're more rare than I would like. Start with one person. Find one safe person who will listen, who will still maybe call you to see yourself differently, 
but we'll listen first and allow you to talk about what's broken. And maybe you can even find somebody you can educate. They're well-meaning, but they don't know. So explore together the lament psalms. Um, There are lots of laments in scripture, which are places where people are saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. God, why aren't you doing something? And that's actually something that God wants us to say to him. So that would be what I would say. Look, look around. If you give in and say there is no faith community that I can go to, it would be understandable. But I think it would be a defeat that's um, exactly what I believe in evil, what evil would want. When you are a person who has been very wounded by a faith community, the temptation might be to go back and do the same to the person who ashamed you. And I feel like that's the like eating the rat poison and waiting for the rat to die type of thing. Like you're not serving yourself, you're not serving the other person. It's just not helping the situation. It's almost adding to this toxic nature of the relationship. And um I don't think you need like if you've been wounded I would not necess- I would not recommend you move toward the person who has abused you but um obviously but just to make that clear it's complicated and you need support and advocates to do that. I also think in your own mind if you've been wounded to blame the person who has wounded you and to just hate in your heart that person and shame them in your heart even I think it can be I think it can add to the toxicity of the experience. Yeah, it's good to be able to separate um, what individuals have done versus what it says about the God you follow, right? Um, uh, One practical thing that you could do is to get a couple of books on this topic to read. So Kurt Thompson's The Soul of Shame. Read it and then decide to read it with a friend, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm You know, start one by one, you know, create a small group of people who want to read it together and discuss and talk about the problem and talk about what some of the solutions might be. You know, Ed Welch has a book called Shame Interrupted. Um, either these are both good books. I might start with Kurt's. Um, it may be a little easier to do, but they're, they're both good books. There's more books. Shame and Grace is an older classic work as well by Luce Meads. Um, and these are if you like to read, these are great ways to start getting into this and read it with a friend. Yeah. And for those of you who know, I love Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. Brene Brown's a great resource as well. She's, um, she's got a lot of good stuff out there. I actually just posted a video this week about her talking about faith communities being very unsafe for many people. And she addressed that a little bit. It was interesting. So maybe I'll post that with this episode as well. So, okay, one last question. To get personal for a minute, if you don't mind, um, what is one or more experience that you've had that's been most most transformational in your own journey with restoring shame or addressing shame? Well, I think of a number of people who moved towards me in times of of brokenness and sometimes I wasn't even aware that my brokenness was showing (laughs) Mm -hmm. I thought I had it nicely covered up 
Um, and it wasn't always, you know, there, there, you know, let me pat you on the back. Sometimes it was really direct. Um, I remember this one time I was riding in a car with my pastor. I was a young seminarian and we were going quite a ways uh, in the car. So we had lots of time to talk. And he asked me why I was interested in ministry. At that time, I wasn't sure if I was going to be a psychologist or a pastor who counseled. And uh, I talked about something about wanting to be a leader, I'm sure, or something, because I was thinking more about, probably about, you know, I wanted to be somebody rather than, he says, tell me, one of the questions I always ask people who are interested in maybe being a pastor, do you love people? You know, it was a very confrontive question. Mm because I realized I wasn't thinking about people and helping people. I was thinking about me. And mm. so there I was, mm. there was a lot of shame. Mm. He could have ended that and just sort of walked away, but he continued in the conversation and continued to invite me in and mentor me, disciple me, include me in his family's activities. So um, that was one of those things that spoke. He loved me enough to ask me a hard question and stay with me mm -hmm. in the process. Yeah. I'll just drop a bomb and then <laughs> walk away. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one of the ones that comes up. People who are willing to stay when things were messy and didn't look that great. Mm. Yeah, it's true. I've experienced that as well. Well, I'm going to end this by reading. I've been reading Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen, which is really... It's one of the better books that's out there, I would say. It's not, it doesn't directly address shame, but it talks about what it's like to live out of an identity of being beloved and blessed. And one of the reasons I do blessings on this podcast is actually because of this book. He talks about how important they are. So uh, I'm just going to read this little this paragraph here because this is very applicable to what we're talking about. There's always something in us searching for an explanation of what takes place in our lives. And if we have already yielded to the temptation of self-rejection, then every form of misfortune only deepens it. When we lose a family member or a friend through death, when we become jobless, when we fail an examination, when we live through a separation or a divorce, when a war breaks out, an earthquake destroys our home or touches us. And quest the question why spontaneously emerges. Why me? Why now? Why here? It is so arduous to live without the answer to this why that we are easily seduced into connecting the events over which we have no control with our conscious or unconscious evaluation. When we have cursed ourselves or have allowed others to curse us, it is very tempting to explain all of the brokenness we experience as an expression or confirmation of this curse. Before we fully realize it, we have already said to ourselves, you see, I always thought I was no good. Now I know for sure. The facts of life prove it. The great spiritual call of the beloved children of God is to pull their brokenness away from the shadow of the curse and put it under the light of the blessing. This is not as easy as it sounds. The power of the darkness around us are strong. The powers are strong. 
and our world finds it easier to manipulate self-rejecting people than self-accepting people. But when we keep listening attentively to the voice calling us the beloved, it becomes possible to live our brokenness, not as a confirmation of our fear that we are worthless, but as an opportunity to purify and deepen, deepen the blessing that rests upon us. So the invitation I have for you all today, lifers, is to try to live out of this identity that calls to you from a deeper current within you. It's very, it can be very hard to tap into when the surface is calling our attention to shame and guilt and brokenness. So I invite you to consider ways of faking it until you make it, to live as if you already are beloved and maybe you will begin to believe it. My blessing to you is simply this. You are beloved already. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to achieve it. Before you've done anything, you already have this identity. So may you live out of it in a beautiful and full, rich way. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us, Phil. Hope to have you back soon. <laughs> and um, thanks for joining us, lifers. Take great care. Take my mind and take my pain